0: Hello! You're about to listen to episode 5 of What Are You Making Me Watch? In it, we will be discussing, in a spoilery fashion, episode 5 of Band of Brothers. You've been warned.
1: Hello and welcome to What Are You Making Me Watch? I'm Paul Kirkley. You're quite gravelly this week, Paul. I am. I've got a bit of the lurgy, but I'm being ever so brave.
0: <laughs> you're such a trooper. You're our Joe Toy. You really are.
1: <laughs> I truly am. And who are you?
0: And I am Hannah Dunleavy.
1: And this week, we're looking at episode five of Band of Brothers Crossroads, and we're going to be talking dick, and also about Dick Winters.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. Come on, it's open season on dick jokes, and... <laughs> Open season on Winter's Anecdotes, and I've got one from Matthew Leach I've been holding on to, plus I'm going to be talking
1: to Marlena Dietrich. Okay, that's got quite a booking. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Did you did you contact her on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, oh, I you know, don't mind my... contacting you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Via a Ouija board?
1: <laughs> yes. Well, as people probably
0: know, Marlena Dietrich, now dead. I'm actually speaking to actor Peter Groom, who is the next best thing, and that will all make sense when we get there.
1: And when will all become clear. Well, let's go.
0: OK, episode five, Crossroads, named after the literal crossroads at which a lot of the action takes place, but also the metaphorical crossroads Easy Company finds itself at. They start the episode led by rock-solid Dick Winters and end it in the hands of Dyke, a.k.a. Foxhole Norman. And between the two, they rescue some bloody Brits, take out a whole load of SS officers, and again, accidentally, shoot one of their own. <laughs> Could you just stop shooting each other, please? <laughs> Plus, Dick Winters gets annoyed by some loud yanks in Paris. We've all been there. Yeah, I was quite excited
1: this week. When On what did you make me watch? Hannah's making me watch Crossroads. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sadly, not the long-default Midlands Motel saga with Noel Corden and (laughs) Miss Doyen.
0: I said to you the other day that this is the episode that you're really going to struggle with because not only have you been struggling with telling what the fuck's going on a lot of the time anyway, in this episode, they choose to fuck with the narrative structure and therefore, when we first meet Dick Winters, you're like, what's happened? He doesn't seem to be in charge and it's quite confusing. I will say, when you watch it again and again, as I have, it turns out to be one of the strongest episodes of the 10. But at first watch, it does appear to be a bit of a nightmare. How did you get on with it?
1: Yes, I I am starting to get a little bit frustrated with the lack of an obvious narrative through line. I did find myself thinking, where is this going? What What is Easy Company's mission? Now, I know it's to win the war, but within that, I'm not sure what their objective is and I'm not getting much sense of how it's going. So it seems to be going terribly. Wherever they go, they just get shot at. But then this episode takes place at the end of 1944, so it's just six months before VE day so I'm assuming the Allies must be making uh, some sort of progress. So maybe that just reflects the reality of war, that orders were constantly changing, one step forward, two steps back. But it is a bit scrappy and uh, quite confusing to watch.
0: Yes. So this is Dick Winters' episode, but it's also the officers' episode. A lot of it takes place sort of back room. Yes. So so there's more on a a level of this one, of what the planning a little bit more. So I think we have a tiny bit more idea what they're doing. (laughs) Like when they go and get the bloody Brits, the Red Devils, there is actually an explanation of what's happened there and and what, what they're trying to achieve.
1: Yeah, this is the most dick-heavy episode, isn't it? Mm. Stop it. Mm-hmm. This is serious. This is the Nazis. It's not funny. This is the most dick-heavy episode. Did you wait till I was drinking tea to that? <laughs> and um, I wonder if Dick Winters is the soldier that Tom Hanks would like to be. Well, interestingly, we get
0: our first and only spoiler from the talking heads in, here, in this. Mm. And that is that Dick Winters survives the war.
1: Yes, yes.
0: It's the only time that you get a spoiler in all of those. I feel like they're finally saying, this isn't Saving Private Ryan. Yeah,
2: you know, this yes. is
0: something different. But yes, yeah. I, I think, do you think Dick Winters is probably the soldier that everybody wants to be, it's true. isn't it?
1: It's true. I, I, I Yeah, and unlike Hank, Dick Winters would never steal someone's podcast idea.
0: Absolutely that's, not. <laughs>
1: that's Though no, 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 he does wake someone up in this episode by throwing a vast one of their own piss over there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that, that is quite rich on rewatching of these is that there are two plot lines that, that really start to bubble away mm. here in this episode that come to fruition in later episodes. And I don't think that this is spoilerish because I think you will have spotted these. And one of these is Nixon's story. Yeah. And it starts to become increasingly clear that Nixon has a drinking problem.
1: Right,
0: yeah. In fact, he says in this, and I wrote it down, yeah, you're right, maybe this is the perfect place to stop drinking right on the business end of the Allied Advance. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs)
1: That was great, that, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 He's also got a bacon sandwich addiction to go with it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I said this when you asked who who my favourite character was, and I said, I really like Nixon, and it's for this reason. It's that he's... He's battling something else on top of everything else. It's a bit like another piece of terrific television, the terror. Jared Harris's character, the captain, has to do something about the fact that he's an alcoholic because he's got this major thing that's about to happen to him and he basically has to shut down and deal with it. But unfortunately, Nixon's not in the situation where he could shut down and deal with it here. He just
1: has to carry on. No, keep calm and carry on. There's a reason that that came out of the war, isn't there? Yeah. (laughs) I've got to disappoint you even more than usual by asking my standard question. Has Nixon been in it before?
0: <laughs> yes, he's been in a lot before. In fact, we've <laughs> talked about him before. Okay, he I'm so is. he's got like face
1: blindness or something.
0: <laughs> he is an, intelli- an intelligence officer. Yes, an gotcha. so officer class, obviously. Yes, and there exactly. is a real feel to that because, you know, when Bill Garnier comes back from hospital, they're all in the office. And he's talking about a football match. There is suddenly a clear difference between Winters that he has sort of outgrown the men at that point. He is like officially, probably never personally. In fact, we know never personally, but sort of officially.
1: But it's interesting. I mean, he obviously he likes to lead from the front Winters. And he doesn't mind being shot at. It's the paperwork he can't handle, isn't it? <laughs> Same for all of us, isn't it? Well, that made me feel better about myself. Because actually, you know, when I moan about basically having to type for a living, I'd say like, Winters sees that the struggle is real. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's not happy with the desk job, really, is he? No. 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 He's like um, TJ Hooker, who, was, you know, when he was desperate to get back on the beat. <laughs> Where the action is. I can tell that you're not across TJ Hooker law. That's fine.
0: I was more of a Rockford Files kind <laughs> okay, of guy, I have
1: yeah, to say. No, <laughs> and there was always a little really subliminal clip of the, of the nudie lady on the beach, which um, we used to watch out for. Anyway, what we learn about Winters in this episode, I think, is that underneath the calm and reassuring exterior that he presents to his men, he's obviously actually quite traumatised, isn't he? Mm.
0: Um,
1: yeah. PTSD, as no one would have called it. Back then, and are we also to infer from the Paris scenes that maybe he's also a bit lonely? That maybe the the company of the company of his men is a bit like a family to him. Probably, I think he's um, he's not a happy pen pusher. He, he's happy leading the troops into battle. He wouldn't ask them to do anything he wouldn't do himself, which is so different from many leaders as you and I've worked for. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, almost everyone, I would say, yeah. He is a victim almost of his own success here, isn't he? It, yeah. Of doing the job too well, which is unusual because what Band of Brothers does go on to show here is that people aren't always promoted for the right reasons and, yes. you know, connections and things like that matter. So in the on the one hand, it's really great to see someone being promoted because they could actually do the job and they did it very well. But it does mean that... Through a series of unfortunate incidences that Easy Company are now in the hands of someone that from the very first time you see him, you know that he is not going to be able to to lead them.
1: Yeah, it's not going to end well, is it? So this was directed by Tom Hanks. It was. The famous podcast thief. Mm-hmm. Do you know if he directed any episodes of the other Crossroads? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think the one where Benny lost his hat.
1: Oh, yeah, yes. A seminal moment, yeah. <laughs> with Tom's uh, days in uh, ATV in Birmingham are uh, uh, underappreciated. What's your favourite Tom Hanks film, Hannah?
0: My gut reaction says Big, but <laughs> right. Big has issues. Like, there, yeah, they're, there's some stuff about Big that's not right, and I yeah. can't quite clarify yeah, it.
1: If you start to pull on the thread of Big, it's disturbing, isn't it?
0: It, yeah, it really, really is. Captain Phillips is an incredibly good film. I, I like Paul Greengrass. And Tom Hanks doesn't do much in it until about the last yeah. ten minutes. And in the last ten minutes of it, he is amazing. Yeah. What about you?
1: I'm going to go um, Toy Story 3, I think. When Andy moves away to college and gives away the toys and Woody says, so long, Wagner. Gets gets me every time.
0: I had to live-tweet the Brexit result in 2016. And periodically, I just tweeted a photograph of the toys holding hands as they slid into the incinerator. And people got really angry with me, not because, not because they were Brexiteers, but because they were like... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They were like, it's too much. I can't, I can't cope with it all at the same time. Another one of the plots that starts to bubble under here a bit is Buck Compton's plot, because he does not look good.
1: He doesn't. He's got a bit of a thousand yard stare yeah. at him, hasn't he? Yeah. Even Marlene can't do it for him. No. So this is going to be significant.
0: Well, we've talked about mental health before, and like I say, he doesn't look good in this episode. No. I think it's unavoidable that we don't, we, and we probably will go on to talk about it. But I think up until this point, Badder Brothers has tackled mental health as an issue of how people respond to panic and fear and pressure. Whereas what Buck Compton's story is starting to show is what it's like when the relentlessness of it starts to grind you down, yeah. rather than it be about this heightened emotion. I yeah. mean, it probably is about a lot of heightened emotions, but you know what I mean. It's not about one thing; it's
1: about yes. everything. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was beautifully acted, actually, without saying anything. Just you know, proper face acting. Yeah, yeah. good old fashioned. Yeah. I think
0: good old fashioned. Face acting is quite recent, isn't it? Because acting from the stage. Yes, no, useless. No (laughs) point. No. You just did shout (laughs) acting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, shouting in the evening. That's what Patrick Troughton used to call the (laughs) theatre.
0: Talking about the officers, Colonel Sink does one of the most frustrating things a boss can do to you in this episode. And he just says, get it done. And this is kind of a thing that he says all the time. And although what they get done in this is actually an achievable thing, you do hear those words a lot from Sync coming up, get it done.
1: It's right up there with, um, I don't want excuses, I just want
0: results. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes, in the uh, management wanker speak, isn't it? Yeah,
0: along with, I don't want any negativity. Can we all try and be positive about this? (laughs) And then when you point out during it that it's going wrong, uh, they'll tend to say now's not the time. It's a bit the same with politics and then when it's over people say first it's too soon and then it's like you're still banging on about that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of things never get dealt with do they?
1: Still banging on about that iceberg. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of our regulars okay. Woman watch. One old lady knitting. Two seconds. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a woman to add to woman watch this week though. Okay you're doubling our woman watch count.
0: I am, yes. I'm going to add Marlena Dietrich.
1: She was a woman. She was a woman.
0: She was mentioned. Colonel Sink went to see her in Reims. Mm-hmm. And also she was in the film with John Wayne. I should have found out what that film was, really, that they were watching. Yeah, it was a, cl- <laughs> a classic, that film. Yeah. And she is quite incredible, Marlena Dietrich. And did a huge, a huge amount in the war effort for the for us. For the good guys, yes, for, the, for the Allies, despite being a German, obviously, who had left Germany. Do you know much about Marlena Dietrich?
1: Almost nothing. She's in Madonna's Vogue. She is. Now,
0: it's funny you should say that because I decided to go off and find someone who was an expert in Marlena Dietrich. And, you know, I can find some biographers or historians, and no offence to any of those people, we've had some lovely chats with historians on this podcast, and we've got some more coming up. But I thought it'd be really nice to talk to a performer about Marlena Dietrich, given that she was a performer, and find out why she was so beloved by American servicemen, but also why she's so beloved still. So I tracked down Peter Groom. I say tracked down. <laughs> I found him on Twitter. Um, <laughs> wow. Who is re- with that
1: Pulitzer Prize is in the post.
0: <laughs> yeah. Who is responsible for an award-winning one-man show? called Dietrich Natural Duty and he also does a second Marlena Dietrich show. He's got shows coming up soon in Liverpool. Now you're going to find out now, if I play that interview, why I was interested in what you just said about Madonna. My
1: interest is suitably peaked.
0: So best place to start, why Marlena Dietrich?
2: She was always kind of around my first... Introduction to her was through Vogue by Madonna. You know, at the end she she wraps all the Hollywood stars, and I I went and looked them all up. And Marlena's image was the most interesting to me. It was sort of very aloof and cold and distant, and I just thought that was interesting. And then I moved to Germany when I was seventeen, and through her kind of songs, I started to learn German a little bit. And then actually, the reason I started performing as her was because of a friend had a Halloween party and assigned us all parts and I got given Marlene Dietrich and then somebody saw a photo from that party and hired me for a cabaret show and then it just kept going.
0: Marlene Dietrich quite often spent her time dressed in men's clothes
2: or what we would traditionally call men's clothes. She's playing with the idea of the clothes that you put on and what they mean to how people see you. She has a lot of fun in that idea of them even just simple things that, you know, if she, when she wears pants, the, the stance can be wider. Her legs can be wider. The way she struts is more open. I mean, and there's also a kind of homoerotic thing. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. I think it's Seven Sinners where she's dressed as a sailor in a room full of sailors flirting with them. But she's dressed as a man. I mean, it's hugely gay. Yeah. And she's playing with the whole idea of these guys who are fawning over her. But really they're falling over the image of a man. She just keeps subverting that idea of gender what we expect it to be. I think that's really great.
0: How did the Germans feel about Marlene Dietrich? Because she did basically disavow her Germanness and throw herself really wholeheartedly into the Allied
2: effort, didn't she? She did, yeah. She changed her citizenship and then joined the American army. She raised I think she raised the most money out of anybody for the the bomb effort mm. to buy bombs to Bon Berlin, where her mother is living. I mean, there's this huge clash between her idea of duty and what she thinks is right. I think she's still a little bit controversial. I mean, in, in the early 90s in Berlin, they tried to name a street after her, and people still protested and said, no, 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 we we, we don't want it. And so now she has a little sort of square, but round the back of Potsdamer Platz in Berlin. You You can't really, it's not big or anything special, but... I think she is still controversial but all the things that she is and I mean she's the daughter of a a Prussian officer and a, a mother who is from Berlin. I mean she's incredibly incredibly German and it's actually all those things that pull her away from Germany in a way.
0: Her accent's interesting isn't it because obviously it wasn't politically uh, great to have a German accent so it falls in a really weird place. How do you get on with an accent like that when you're performing?
2: I really like doing it. I find it really, really fun because it, I think there's a few different Marlene accents. There's a sort of real one. Then there's the sort of soft one. And then towards the end, there's almost her doing Marlene Dietrich, what she thinks that sounds like. Mm. Because it's not a German accent at all. I mean, it has sort of bits of it, but, but she has such a nice way of pulling words out speaking very slowly and um, it's like a purring all the time and it's a nice uh, lilt that she has. But it's very fun. I I think sometimes also maybe it's just um, the way that she was at, at certain times, you know, her face is pulled back, she's doing certain things to appear to look younger so she just can't really move her mouth that much. So I think that also has a hand in it, really.
0: I think it's a problem still for actresses now but for actresses in that period, in the sort of the golden age of the Hollywood starlet, always trying to avoid the sunset boulevard ending to your career. How do you think she got on with sort of the aging process? I
2: think she fought it. I think she fought it a lot. But I think, strangely, I I don't think she did it out of vanity. I think she did it out of, well, that's my job. You know, it's my job to look beautiful and to be this glamorous star. And I think she she stopped about fifteen years before the end of her life and just didn't go out in public again. Um and I think she couldn't it was because she couldn't maintain that illusion anymore. It just became too hard. I mean she was performing till she was seventy five, I think. And everything is old padding and uh I think towards the end she used to perform behind a gauze. Like a, a really thin gauze that would be at the front of the stage. So you're sort of looking at her through yeah, this sort of sheen. Originally, she was a sort of... Well, I think they wanted it to be like another Garbo, a sort of very European, aloof, mystical kind of goddess creature. And then I think, unlike Garbo, she switches it in the, about the 40s, And she does a a film called Destry Rides Again, which is a Western, in which she plays a girl called Frenchie with the thickest German accent ever. I mean, and there's no explanation why this girl from Germany is in the middle of the desert. But, you know, she's great (laughs) in it. But she becomes a sort of glamour girl with a sense of humour and begins to sort of laugh at herself and joke. And I think that's probably how she kept going, unlike Garbo. I think she was sort of your mate in a way. And I think her work in the war sort of endeared her to people. Uh, particularly Americans and Allied forces.
0: She's got sort of all things to all men, and I do mean men in that sense, quality to her, literally, because soldiers, the Allied soldiers, just loved her because she she turned up, she performed, she she did that, she really grafted for them. But also, subsequently, she has become a gay icon, hasn't she?
2: I think so. I think she has a I-don't-care-what-you-think-of-me attitude, and she shrugs it all off. I mean, it's all... It's all illusion. I think she has real fun with what you do with illusion and what it means and the power yeah. of it. And I think that's very appealing. I don't know, I'm gay. I, I find that fascinating, That the idea of how people see you and what they expect of you and then how you'll flip it and play with it. Yeah, she, she crosses many things. She is incredibly sexy and, and that sex image of her. But then also she's very motherly. I mean... Particularly in the war, during the war, she was in her forties with these soldiers who were twenty. You know, so she's flirting with them, but there's also a caring aspect. There's a worldliness to her of like I've been around and I'll I'll tell tell you of the world. And then she wasn't flying in doing a show and flying out. She spent a lot of time at the front and a lot of time marching with them, with her dresses in a in a backpack march all day and then put the dress on at night and sing and for me what was fascinating making the show and as a theatrical thing was she didn't hide her glamour in that she didn't scrape her hair back and wear no makeup she did all of that she did all of that marching as marlena dietrich as this hollywood star that she'd created because she knew what that meant to them to say i am here with you and we'll get through it i mean it's That's drag. I mean, it's using a persona to empower people, to allow them to dream and to forget for a second where they are. I think that's really interesting, taking drag and theatre into that war context. Fascinating. This is a time where the film stars, you saw them on a screen. I mean, you saw them, you know, 10 foot high. You see her face that big. You wouldn't have seen her on TV. You wouldn't have seen her on your phone. You might have seen a picture of her in a magazine. But really, they're these massive sort of icons. So to have that in real life would have been, I don't know, extraordinary. I don't know what the what the modern equivalent would be. Like Beyonce joining the army or something and marching. I read a thing about her, and, and, and it, I guess it's kind of true. They were sort of talking about women's history and sort of saying that Marlena is, is sort of inextricably linked to every big thing that's happened in the past 100 years, really. I mean, in terms of like... The emancipation of women in the sort of 20s and 30s. I mean, she's an icon, the trouser wearing, men's suit wearing woman. Then in terms of entertainment, I guess the biggest thing happened is Hollywood, the rise of Hollywood. She's there. And then also fascism and the war. And she's right bang at the center of that. It's like all these huge things that made a change to the you know 20th century. She's at the center of it. It's, it's amazing.
0: Can you tell me a bit more about your show? You've got one coming up in Liverpool, haven't you?
2: I do. I have, it's called it's called Dietrich Live in Liverpool. It's a cabaret show that I tour around, so we change the city wherever we are, and it's part of Homotopia Festival, which is a great big queer festival that happens every year in Liverpool. And it's at St George's Hall on the 31st of October, which is a beautiful concert hall, which is so nice to be able to play. And the show is, unlike Natural Duty, it's, uh, it's a it's a cabaret show, so there's no story. It's more live music uh, with a piano and it's different songs. It's a sort of musical journey through Marlena with some also new things thrown in as well. It's a live sort of cabaret show. We've been doing it here in London at Sadell's. I have a residency at, at um, Crazy Cox, so we do it there every few months and... Um, yeah, it's great. It's it's nice. It's totally different to the other show. It's totally different just being there as her with no, not no story to tell, but you're just there with the audience to play and to enjoy sort of being in her uh, world, I guess.
0: Do you find that people know much about Marlene Dietrich when they come to see you? Do you think history is remembering her quite as much as it should?
2: I think there's images of her that are iconic. That people remember, and you you see again and again and again. I mean, you see the tux. Madonna does it every you know few years, and it gets referenced again and again. I think her war work and her political activism is probably not remembered as much, which is a shame. I think what inspired me to sort of make the show is that it was a time when everybody was posting, you know, on Facebook. I mean, we all we can all post online. We can all share petitions and whatever. But when it comes to it, what do you actually do to change your place in the world and and stand up for what you believe in? What's your action? And hers was very clear. And I think that's really admirable. Oh, I couldn't agree more. As the world becomes more polarised, I think we're going to probably be required to do more and not just throw it out there into the ether, but really go to marches and um, stand up. Another of our regular
1: features, uh, Brit Watch. The, the Brits in this are basically like the red shirts in Star Trek, aren't they? They're just uh, they're cannon fodder. Um, <laughs> Operation Pegasus is basically Operation Dig the Vilemis out of another fucking hole. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're not, we're not coming out of this well, are we? I mean, I'm sure, it's just, <laughs> sure, it's historically accurate, but
0: uh, <laughs> yeah. Now might be the time for some spot the celeb quiz.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Spot the celeb. Yes, let's do it.
0: (laughs) You haven't done that once the same, and I don't know whether that's a gift or a curse.
1: Yeah, I think it's just always innovate. (laughs) 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 Swat.
0: Okay, number one, which two-time Oscar winner and now nemesis of this podcast can be spotted as one of the British... In the drinking what? scene. Tom Hanks? That wanker.
1: What? There he is. You can see him plotting his podcast. So he again cast himself as a Brit? Yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> How humble of him. <laughs> How humble of him. He'll be dead by the next uh, episode.
0: I can't believe, I love Tom Hanks. I can't believe the shit I talk about him on this uh, everybody, everybody
1: loves Tom Hanks.
0: Yeah. OK, question two. Which US talk show host was seen making a much-needed ammo run towards the end of the episode?
1: Is it uh, James Corden? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll just go through them. Jerry Springer, Jimmy Fallon. Jerry
0: Springer, which century are you living
1: in? <laughs> Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy other...
0: Fallon is correct. Is it? Yes.
1: But there's another Jimmy, isn't there, in the talk show game? Jimmy G- G- Kimball. Are, the are they different people? I don't know. I Maybe think Jimmy Kimball was the guy that G- killed his wife, wasn't it? No, Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon. I think they're separate people,
0: aren't they? They're, they're definitely separate people, yeah. 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 Don't know who Jimmy Kimball is, though, unfortunately. <laughs>
1: OK, so Jimmy Jimmy Fallon's in this as, as a youngster. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's two two people I failed to spot. But then I can't spot the lead characters, <laughs> so asking me, asking me to spot... Camp fleeting cameos is a big ask, isn't it? Well,
0: on that note, mm-hmm. we've had a message from the listener about episode... From Alice- a listener. From oh, a Alice- yeah. <laughs> about episode one, and by a listener I mean my nephew. Ah, good, and it's okay. vis-a-vis the English Cockney, who we decided must be played by an American. Yes. But he pointed out that that is in fact Harry Peacock from Toast of London. Husband, no way. husband of Catherine Parkinson, and brother of Daniel Paycock.
1: Wow, and son of Trevor. Yes, off of the Vicar of Dibley. Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, fair enough. Well, maybe they just made him act like an American doing a cockney. Yeah. Maybe yes. they said it, it. Maybe he was too. It, he came in. He did it. It was too realistic. They said, you know, showed him a clip of Mary Poppins. Said, can you do it like more like this? They're are a good a good acting dynasty
0: though the peacocks aren't they? They are. I have recently watched rewatched for my other job, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Was... <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. Oh God no, it was it was amazing fun to watch. It knows what it is. It's got some fun performances in it, including Daniel Peacock, who's the best bit is like to the trees. Yes. When all of those people that look like the people who invaded the capital, the Celts, they're all at the the top of the hill. Yeah. All the QAnons came in. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So just going back to the kind of narrative, the choppy narrative, a lot of this, a lot of Band of Brothers generally is people crawling around in ditches and having battles, which, again, and I keep saying this, I know that that is what war is like. Mm sometimes it does feel a bit like watching those enactment societies you know where supply teachers spend their weekends recreating the battle of Naseby, that sort of thing I, because there's a lot of action in it a lot of battles and sometimes i would like to see more more time on the bits in between less war war more jaw jaw, as they say
0: not to give too much away i think yeah you're right you're on I fairly think... safe ground i think this is Of all the episodes on First Watch, this is the one that's most... I don't know what the fuck's going on. (laughs) You've jumped that hurdle now. More of it takes place in daylight coming up as well, which also helps. Oh, that
1: helps, yes. Even as a kid, I was never into action sequences particularly. I drift off when Starsky and Hutch were having a car chase through the cardboard boxes. I think I preferred the banks with Huggy Bear. So I don't know whether that's just unusual for a boy. But
0: what I can say is, obviously, they're about to go into the woods to the town of Bastogne, which is, we would know better as that whole Battle of the Bulge scenario is about to happen there. And I warn you, mate, it's going to be very, very bleak. Yeah. And the next couple of episodes are actually tough watches because I think it changes from being a war of attack, which it has been up until this point to being yeah. a bit more of a war of attrition. I don't feel like I'm spoiling that because you know that's coming because I think this episode gets the stirring end that we haven't yeah, yeah, seen yeah. since the end of the first episode.
1: Yeah, they're walking into something, aren't they, very clearly at the end
0: there. Without any of the stuff that they actually need to do the job that they're doing, but they've got right. this.
1: Yeah,
0: Get it done is, being yeah. like, is what's coming down to them.
1: They've got a basic lack of ammunition and socks. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's what we learned. And like, cigarettes. And yeah. yeah, coats. Coats seems like the thing that would be like really, really
3: yeah. helpful. Because they'll not feel the benefit, will they?
0: No. Now, when I was talking to Matthew Leach, I don't know if you can remember this, I said I'd cut some bits out. And actually, mm. he, he told me a story about filming the ending of that scene. So maybe we should put that in here.
3: Brilliant. Let's go. Cool. My favourite memory is a weird one. When we did episode five, which is the one Tom Hanks directed, that was quite small, apart from the crossroads charge and all that stuff. Mm. It was often just a few of us together. And one night, it was when we were filming in the back of the truck, for the Deuce and a half, just about to go into bastille right at the end of the episode. So a few of us in the back of the truck, and Tom was there with the sun he actually pans off his son's head he had a helmet if you actually watch the shot it pans off a helmet like this the back of the truck that's his son i think was actually holding the camera but before we did it before we actually filmed it we were sort of waiting for the night to fall be like super dark there was this rumor that dick winters was on set like the real guy so he's, he's come down he's like come over from america and he um At one point, we're sort of like arsing around in the back of the deuce and a half, and there's like a canvas flap that comes down over the back of the truck. The canvas flap goes up, and there's a couple of people stood there, and there's one sort of little guy, they're all little guys, and it's Dick Winters. And he looks into the back of the truck, and he sort of looks around, and his face goes sheet white, and he has a word with, I think it was Ivan Schwartz, who was one of the producers, and he just gone, went, went back to America. Got in his car, went back on a plane, and went to Mercury. He said it was like looking to a bunch of ghosts in the back of a truck, looking into the faces of ghosts. He just wasn't ready for it, and he, thus he, he went home. And that—I mean—I don't know. Like that, that's my favorite memory, and I don't know why it's my favorite. Whether that, it's not—that's not Sean not Feiler, is it? That's there's it, just like very poignant about that. It was like kind of—I don't know. That's what really sticks with me. That's. Powerful. This is this is going to impact people in a big way. I think that's my favourite memory. And then I met him again in in Roland Garros when we were doing the premiere and stuff. And he was he was great. My arm around him. Oh, just a little tiny guy. They're just amazing. They're all tiny. Really? Yeah, tiny. Although um, my mum is now tiny. Is that age? <laughs> I don't think they shrunk. I think they were tiny. today. I think there's a there's a sort of theory that that smaller guys may be parachutists.
1: I mean, always with the stories, Matthew. It's great, yeah. isn't
3: it? Yeah, I've got some more
0: in the bag that I will be able to play soon. So We many. learn the fate of of certain band of brothers, characters slash real men. Lovely. So, as we were discussing, there's some hard times ahead for Easy Company.
1: Yes, winter is coming.
0: Episode six next week,
1: Bastone. Yeah. It's not a barrel of laughs, is it? But there's lots to talk about.
0: There is lots to talk about. I have a couple of interviews coming up. As before. ever, the ever reliable James Always. Holland. And also, more women's history. This will be three episodes in a row. I've managed to shoehorn some women's history and I'm actually giving Paul the three fingers. Because I'm talking to the author Martin King about Augusta Shewe, one of the nurses who appears wow. in the next episode. This is what happens when you
1: make a, a podcast with a feminist. Yeah. 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 All with, with yeah. the women's history. If anything, you, you're giving the listeners too much content, Hannah. You're spoiling them. Well, that's good because I haven't got anyone for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, OK, fine. <laughs> Always leave them wanting more. OK. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to What Are You Making Me Watch? which is written, produced and edited by Hannah Dunleavy and Paul Kirkley. Our theme tune, Silver and Gold, is from Audio Hub.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at Make Me Watch Pod, or you can follow Paul where he is at PR Kirkley. The rest of the time, he can be found on the pages of Waitrose Weekend, Classic Pop, and Doctor Who magazine, among many other things.
1: Among several other things.
0: He's also written two books about Doctor Who.
1: What are they called, mate? They're called um, Space Helmet for a Cow 1 and Space Helmet for a Cow 2. <laughs> two, two space, two cow. Yeah, two helmets. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find Hannah on Twitter at that Dunleavy, or in her day job talking about women's rights and a lot more besides at the Standard Issue podcast. Thanks for listening.